Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hello, Chris. Good to talk. Can I start off today by just noting that some of our listeners have noticed that we've changed the introduction music on our podcast in the last podcast. And the outro. In the intro and the outro. Absolutely. Freshen it up, bring a bit of vigor. I think it probably harps back to our age, Chris, and the type of music we would have listened to, well, still do listen to. But I just like to, personally, I love the music. It's a track called Let It Rain. It was given to us by a musician in Wexford called Ronan Furlong. He's an Irish musician and songwriter based in Wexford. He's produced, I think, six albums to date. I would recommend to anybody to go on to Spotify, Ronan Furlong, check out his music. But anyway, that's the intro and outro music we're using for the podcast and i'd like to formally thank ronan for allowing us use this music i hope our listeners like it yes absolutely jim i second that and thanks from me to ronan as well right so moving on to today's agenda a lot of stuff out of the united states over the last couple of days which i think sows further confusion in terms of where interest rates go secondly quite a bit of irish data over the last couple of days some of it i wrote about last night on in relation to house prices and external trade data but we had inflation data as well that i now want to talk about uh, we've seen the resignation of Nicola Sturgeon as First Minister of Scotland and leader of the Scottish Nationalist Party. I think that does warrant a discussion, particularly in the context of similar sort of nationalist parties in this country. And finally, there's a lot going on in markets that I think does warrant a little bit of a discussion at this stage. If I may start, Chris, by just summarizing uh, the data out of the United States, as I say, a little bit of a mixed bag. Housing starts were down by four and a half percent, 
which is a 31-month low, suggesting that um, construction activity is weakening. On the other hand, initial jobless claims, this is the weekly um, number of people who basically sign on for unemployment benefit, came in at 194,000, which was lower than expected. That's keeping with the sort of story of ongoing strength of the US labour market. And indeed, that was reflected in the very strong employment gains we saw in January and also the unemployment rate of 3.6%. Then we got the producer price index. This is um, a measure of inflation at the producer level, increased by 0.7% on the month, which was the highest in seven months. Uh, And I guess importantly, it was significantly higher than the uh, market consensus. So this certainly would not please the Federal Reserve and would seem to indicate that you know, inflationary pressures becoming embedded in the system. Uh, we saw retail sales in January increase by 3% in the month from December, which I believe was the biggest monthly increase in almost 20 years. So the consumer is still alive. And I guess no surprise there, given the strength of the labor market. And then the Philadelphia Purchasing Managers Index for manufacturing was extremely weak. It, in fact, it plunged in February. So a, a lot of stuff going on there, a mixed picture of the United States. Uh, what do you think it all means, particularly in the context of how the Federal Reserve views the economy and views future interest rate prospects? I, th- I think it's in keeping with what we've been talking about for a, a little while now, Jim. The There's one big bit of the US economy that is fine, and that's the services sector of the economy. And I'll talk about why I think that is the case in a moment. We know manufacturing is weak. Uh, We know that housing is verging on weakness. I wouldn't describe it as catastrophically so, but the housing market in the United States and in many other countries is showing signs of softness. And inflation, this is the critical bit, inflation the easy money has been made, if you like, that the fall in inflation that we saw through the second half of last year is now proving difficult to repeat. It's going to be sticky to get it from where it is at the moment down to where the Federal Reserve wants it to be. There's lots of reasons for that picture. I think the strength of the consumer, because you mentioned retail sales being very strong there, I think that's uh, echoed elsewhere, actually, not least in Ireland, in that the it's it there we are still seeing some of the effects of the pandemic here and in particular the consumer in aggregate not everybody in aggregate came out of the pandemic with their balance sheets in very strong position what does that mean it means that they had a stock of savings that was unusually high in aggregate and in the states they re- the, the stock of savings available to consumers at the moment is about 1.6 trillion dollars it's a lot of money and i know that consumers elsewhere their balance sheets seem to be reasonably healthy, if not in rude health. So I think that's supporting consumption. And people are buying services now rather than goods, which explains manufacturing weakness up to a point anyway, and explains services strength. Again, that's partly pandemic related because during the pandemic, it was the other way around. People bought goods, not services. And there's a kind of a big rebalancing effect going on. So I still think that there's a lot going on from the legacy of the pandemic that is yet to work its way through the system. Um, the python swallowed the pig and the pig is yet to reach the other end. So we'll see how that develops. That creates all sorts of problems for the Fed. And I think the market has been right in the last few days to start thinking about interest rates peaking 
at the so-called terminal rate, higher than previously thought. We've gone from about 5 to 5.5%, which is where we thought the peak was going to be. We're now saying 5.5% and whisper it quietly, but some people are talking about 6 6%. So I think that's right. That's what's certainly in the money markets. What is surprising, Jim, is that this is a reprise really of what happened in the autumn of last year when we had some bad inflation numbers and some bad news for the Fed and everybody readjusted their interest rate expectations. Equity markets cratered. They went down heavily for a while. This time, equity markets have just ignored it, essentially. So that's a bit of a puzzle as to why we get exactly the same phenomena producing two two very different equity market reactions. If I may just intervene there to put the context on that, Chris, um, European shares this morning reached a one-year high. Uh, the German DAX crossed 15,600 for the first time since February 22. Uh, the FTSE is at a record high, and the German market, the CAC 40, is now on the brink of achieving an all-time high. So pretty heady equity market performance there, backing up what you're saying. Yeah. And I'm also, of course, referring in addition to those equity markets, the all important US equity market. All of these markets are very, particularly in the short term, correlated with each other. It's the US market that drives the European market most of the time rather than the other way around. So that's a bit of a puzzle. I really find it difficult to explain that other than perhaps to say that the market is still comfortable with the idea that rates are going to peak this year, albeit a little bit higher than previously thought. Maybe it's a bit more subtle than that. Maybe it's the case that we're we're being a little bit more grown up about what asset prices are supposed to be, what equity markets are supposed to be based off. Um, There's supposed to be long-term calculations of um, profits, growth, and all those other things that equity market types look at. And if the world is in good shape, reasonable shape, that's usually a good environment for equity markets. And one of the things that's happening to interest rates is that they're going back to what we would consider from our youth, Jim, to be more or less normal levels. And it's a normalization of monetary affairs, which might suggest that economies themselves are normalizing. And we're back to business as usual, rather than zero percent interest rates, which I know that markets got hooked on for a while and inflated asset values above their fundamental levels and all that good stuff. All of that money printing, all of that abnormal zero interest rates was suggestive, actually, of economic crisis. And if what we're actually seeing is an adult, grown-up view of the normalization of the world economy, which includes interest rates in the states of about 6%, maybe a bit lower, hopefully a bit lower than that in Europe, then maybe that people are saying, well, actually, that might be, yes, difficult in the short term to absorb. But when you think about it from a more medium, longer-term context, that's the way things should be. We're moving away from crisis to normality. So, yeah, maybe maybe things are actually in the round, net, net. Okay, that's by way of explanation all I got. The problem with coming up with stories to explain stock market behavior is that you come up with complete fallacious nonsense. The narrative fallacy, uh, a phrase coined by many other writers about the stock market. And essentially, you're staring at tea leaves trying to trying to tell a story which may or may not make sense. And often the honest, God's honest truth is we don't know why markets do what they do, particularly in the modern era when there's an awful lot of day-to-day trading that's being driven by computers rather than human beings. And nobody actually knows what the computers are doing these days because they're driven by artificial intelligence systems that even the designers don't really know what's going on. So anyway, 
we've got these day-to-day movements. It's our job to try and explain them sometimes. I've got that narrative. I'll stick with it until something uh, more obvious comes along. What do you think, Jim? Yeah, I like that narrative, Chris, in the sense that there's uh, we're returning to some definition of normality um, because you'd have to say over the last number of years, um, interest rates were not normal. Uh, the amount of quantitative easing that central bankers were engaging in for a lot of the past decade, but particularly over the last two or three years, was not normal. And it was inevitable at some stage that we would have to back away from that not normal situation to a situation approaching normality. And uh, the fear, of course, was, and perhaps this fear played out last year, that equity markets would take that very badly, you know, rising interest rates and the um, withdrawal of liquidity from the system through quantitative tightening. Um, Hopefully, well, sorry, I shouldn't say hopefully, but perhaps we have gone through that process and now markets are starting to focus in on, okay, we're we're now in a new interest rate environment. We're in a new monetary policy environment. Generally, uh, we look at what the economy is doing. We look at the implications of that for future earnings growth um, for uh, corporations. And um, that's now being priced into equity markets. I got a question for you then. We can say this from our elevated perch of being old and owning our own homes and all that good stuff, and from having had the experience, at least I have at one point in my life, paying a mortgage at 17%. So did I. Quite a long time ago now. Um, Scary stuff. What if you are younger than us, Jim, and you took out a mortgage two, three years ago in the belief, well, certainly without any knowledge or direct personal experience of interest rates um, in the high single digits or even, God forbid, in double digits, What if you took out that mortgage believing that, in fact, this was normal, that 0% interest rates, 2% mortgage rates were the normal state of affairs that's going to last forever? Notwithstanding old buffers like me and you uh, shouting from the side, this is not normal. Do not base your long-term expectations for your mortgage repayments or your car loan or whatever it is that you're borrowing money for on the basis that these interest rates are going to stay forever. It's a tough question, but do you think many people took out loans, took out mortgages in particular, in the belief that those low rates would last forever? Of, co- of course they did, Chris, yeah. And um, you would hope, um, and I don't actually, I haven't seen the data, uh, I must search, you would hope that over the last couple of years, particularly over the last 12 months, that a lot of people have actually locked in um, at the fixed rates that were on offer on the back of historically low government bond yields, which is what determines the fixed rate mortgage. Because, uh, you know, I, I certainly uh, advise somebody I know to lock in for 10 years at a rate of about 2.2%. Surely that was unusual, Jim. Surely that was unusual that to, to lock in for 10 years. It, from, the date, from my knowledge of the data, which is imperfect, people typically took out two-year fixes. They occasionally took out a five-year fix. And I think your friend is probably one of the three people on the planet outside the United States that t- takes out fixes for longer than that. Well, yeah, I mean, there there is no history in Ireland at all of um, locking in mortgages for long periods of time. And that's why the Irish housing market and the mortgage market was always much more susceptible to what the European Central Bank was doing with short term interest rates than other countries um, in Germany, for example, with a lower level of home ownership, much 
uh, higher rental market and also uh, a much greater preponderance of fixed rate mortgages ecb policy was less effective whereas in ireland it impacted very seriously but there has been actually a move towards fixing mortgages in recent times and um, but i to be honest i'm not going to bullshit anymore chris i need to try and get the data just to see over the last couple of years, what percentage of mortgages have been yeah. fixed? As you say, we don't what... we don't have much data. We certainly don't have time series data because it wasn't that long ago that everybody had a variable rate mortgage and mm. fixes were very, very rare. But what I would be concerned about is those two-year fixes that were taken out a year or 18 yes. months ago. Yes. Or two-year fixes that might have been taken out a year ago that this time next year, when interest rates are higher again, maybe... Uh, I just wonder how that's all going to play relative to what people thought that they were going to be rolling over their fixes for. Well, actually, how how it's going to play, Chris, is something that we have spoken about numerous times about the the generational price that's being paid at the moment. Um, You know, it's a certain segment of the age profile population that will actually be adversely affected by this. For people of our age profile, we really do have it all going for us. Um, you know, so it's it's the same age group that's been hit again, and many of those will find themselves under financial pressure over the next couple of years. And of course, that then will feed into a political narrative um, about doing whatever it takes to help those people. And indeed, we've seen suggestions coming from opposition politicians in recent times about mortgage interest relief and other um, financial. Uh, subsidies for people who are caught in that situation. So now, um, I know as an economist, yeah. you would definitely say mortgage interest relief is a daft idea at the present time. But do I sense from a social perspective, helping out young people with mortgages, you might think that it's actually an idea with merit? Uh, yeah, I do actually. I, I, I economically 100% agree with you. But from a social perspective, uh, I, I think we as a society need to do more and more to help that generation that is under serious financial pressure at the moment. They've, they're paying very high house prices. They're paying high rents if they're renting. Uh, many don't have pensions or if they have pensions, they're defined contribution rather than defined benefit pensions. In other words, what they get out at the end will depend on how much they put in now and how the market performs. Uh, the job for life is you know, is, is a precarious notion at this juncture. So there's a, there's a whole range of factors leaning on that generation. And, and I think from a social perspective, we should do whatever it takes to try and help those people financially get through this because it ain't easy being, you know, aged between 25 and 40 at the moment in Ireland. There's no doubt about that. I would, agree. I did, I would yeah. agree that um, helping them is, is incredibly important because otherwise... The, the thought that this intergenerational thing is going to get worse rather than better doesn't bear thinking about because the consequences will be dreadful. Um, I need these people to pay my pension, hopefully, when exactly. I'm uh, a good bit older than I am now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The question I got for you, Jim, then, is the one that always puts people like us on the spot. And I'm sure you get asked it all the time. So get, get yourself ready, because I'm sure you can see it coming. If somebody came to you today for a piece of advice about life, lifestyle planning, financial planning, and said, I'm thinking of buying a house in Dublin, should I buy it now or wait? What would you say to them? I'll first of all talk about the latest house price data, what that's showing us. Uh, yes, this week we got the data for December. Um, in the year to December, national average house prices increased by 7.8%. Um, that's down from a high of 15.1% in March of last year. Uh, Dublin prices up by 6% year on year. That's down from a peak of 13.2% in February. And outside of Dublin, uh, no major surprises here. Inflation is higher at 9.3%, but that's down from a high of 17.1% um, last March. Uh, the interesting thing is that of, of those three categories that the CSO reports on, uh, at least the headline categories, you can delve further in, but national Dublin and outside Dublin. Uh, Dublin prices actually declined by 0.3% in December. And in fact, between September and December of last year, average Dublin prices declined by 0.6%. That is not a dramatic decline given the level to which Dublin house prices had gone. But it does suggest that um, the Dublin market is certainly losing um, momentum. And we had a discussion in our last podcast um, a confused discussion about what determines house prices and so on. Um, and I think we could have 10 more podcasts covering the same subject, probably wouldn't reach a definitive conclusion. But, you know, it, it seems clear that given that the average mortgage in Dublin is significantly higher, given that house prices in Dublin are significantly higher, uh, rising interest rates are certainly having more of an impact on the Dublin market than elsewhere. So if you believe, as I do, that the European Central Bank is going to increase interest rates further, I would envisage further softening of the Dublin housing market. So um, I'm not saying that you're going to see a tremendous downward adjustment to Dublin house prices um, that will offer real value to people. But I think uh, it's becoming a little bit more of a buyer's market at the moment. So in other words, if I was somebody buying a house, I wouldn't be panicked into panicked into buying a house at this juncture. Um, I think shop around, um, use your negotiation skills and just watch how the market evolves because it is softening um, and has to, you know, given that interest rates are rising, given the exorbitant level at which Dublin house prices had moved to and the affordability issues that that implies. Um, so I, 
I'm giving a real two-handed economist answer here, Chris, but I'd be telling people, don't panic at this stage. Hang on, um, shop around. You may get better value. I think that makes abundant sense. I would add a couple of things, which is that when you're talking about buying a house or an apartment, this is, yes, a very big financial transaction with lots of financial implications, but it's also a, a lifestyle choice. It's a life choice. And there are non-monetary, non-financial factors involved as well. And what you need to do is you need to put it all together. And you need to be able to say, if I find the house that I really, really love and can imagine myself living in for a good number of years, and I can afford the deposit, and I can afford the mortgage, and I could afford the mortgage after my two-year fix or whatever fix I put on it, that is, say, two, three percentage points higher, you need to stress test your financial ability to repay your mortgage. If after all of that, you decide that um, it makes abundant sense to you, then yes, go for it. But that means uh, being a bit more choosy, being a bit more fussy, uh, stressing your your financial situation in theory for going forward. Um, God forbid, imagine what might happen if you lost your job. Uh, that's always a catastrophe, but it's a catastrophe for somebody that has a very large mortgage. All of these factors need to be brought into the equation. So I would echo your remark. There's no hurry. If you find the dream house and you can afford it, stress tested, then go for it. But don't rush. That would be my recommendation. Chris, the, um, we got trade data out of Ireland this week as well. So we now have the final picture for 2022. Um, Ireland's merchandise export, this is exports of physical goods. That machine continues to pour very nicely. Um, exports up 25.6% last year. Um, and looking at the geographic breakdown, exports to Great Britain up by 19.1%. And Great Britain accounted for 8.2% of the total. Exports to Northern Ireland up by 31.3%. And Northern Ireland now accounts for a record 2.4% of our total exports. I, I would hasten to add there that I think the trade data for Ireland and Northern Ireland, um, both in terms of imports and exports, is distorted by Brexit stuff that's happening. So in other words, you know, selling stuff into Northern Ireland that ultimately finds its way into Great Britain. There's a lot of stuff like that going on, um, which, which makes interpretation a little bit difficult. Um, exports to the EU27, and the EU27 now accounts for 38.7% of our total exports, up by 30.8%. Exports to the United States, and this is dominated by the multinational sector, um, the US accounts for just over 30% of our total exports, up by 19.9%. So, you know, the, the, the Irish export model is working really well. And if you look at the breakdown of that, chemical and pharmaceutical products account for 64 4% of total exports. They expanded by 30.4% last year. And of course, that is dominated by the multinational sector. But then the most significant indigenous exporting sector, which is the agri-food sector, exports up 22%. Uh, but that accounts for 7.1% of our total exports. So anyway, in a nutshell, um, Ireland's export performance last year very very strong and um 
you know, we've spoken about this numerous times and, and all of these things are related. You know, that strong export performance is reflected in the strong corporation tax take. It is reflected in the strong labor market performance. So all of these things are tied in and there's a pretty consistent picture emerging there. And, uh, you know, clearly um, long may the FDI model continue to per as smoothly as it is doing at the moment on the inflation front um you know we've 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 discussed in the context of the united states uh the i suppose the incipient inflationary pressures that are there but j- just to sort of summarize inflation at the moment what's been happening uh <clears throat> excuse me in the uk in january 10.1% inflation that's down from a peak of 11.1% in October. In the euro area, the headline inflation rate in January, 8.5%. That's down from 10.6% in October. And in the United States, um, the inflation rate at 6.4%. That's down from a peak of 9.1% in the middle of last year. So we see the headline inflation rate um, you know, is easing. We're still at elevated levels, but it is moving in the right direction. Uh, this week, we got the inflation data for Ireland. The headline rate fell to 7.8%. That's down from 8.2% in December and a peak of 9.2% um, in October of last year. So what's happening there, and, and I think there's a few interesting things happening in the Irish inflation picture that actually I think are being reflected in many countries at the moment. The deceleration in how in consumer price inflation is being driven by energy. You know, there's there's no doubt about that. But then if you look at food price inflation up by 0.6 on the month and it's now running at an annual rate of 12.9%, that's the highest rate of food price inflation we've seen in decades. Private rents up by 0.2 in the month, now running at an annual rate of 10.4%. And indeed, this week, DAF.ie in its rent report suggesting that in the final quarter of last year, average rents were up 14.7%. So different measures of inflation. But the one I'm talking about here is the CSO's private rental index. Um, Another issue, and this ties back to the conversation we've just had, um, mortgage costs increased by 4.5% in January and um, 26.9% year on year. So you can see food, mortgage costs and private rents are certainly taking over from energy as the big drivers of inflation. And it does suggest that this cost of living crisis uh, you know, is continuing to bite consumers on the ground in Ireland. And indeed, next week, um, I believe the Irish government is going to implement another mini budget. Except they're not going to call it a mini budget, Jim. They're not going to call it a mini budget. No, they are not. Absolutely, Chris. But there, there clearly is an election in the next year or two. If they're going, to, if they're starting to do, if they're going to do even more on that, so that'll be interesting to see if, if, if and when they start giving out even even more money. But Jim, there seems to be a very good way on these islands of wrecking a good economy. It strikes me in the wake of Nicola Sturgeon's departure that a very unkind way of characterising her reign as the leader of the Scottish Nationalist Party would be to say that if you pursue policies in which identity trumps economics, in other words, that you pursue the nationalist question in the Scottish case, going for independence, 
and really neglect, don't care about, don't pay any attention to your economy, guess what happens? Two things. One, your economy goes backwards. And the things that in particular you're responsible for, like in the Scottish case, education and health, the state of that compared to when she first took office is a disgrace. I think that there are lots of reasons for Sturgeon's departure, but the state of the Scottish economy had to be a factor there somewhere. And the reason why the Scottish economy has gone backwards is that it has been neglected by this identity trumps economics point. All governments have limited bandwidth. If you do one policy over here, it means that you can't do something over there. There's, there's an opportunity cost. There's a trade-off. There's always uh, a limited amount, a finite amount of what a government can do. And if you pursue the national question, the identity question, above all others, all others get neglected and pushed to the background. And the economy is something that needs tender, loving care. Otherwise, it does go backwards. I'll start mixing my metaphors now and say it's like, an, it's like riding a bicycle. You've got to keep going forwards, otherwise you'll fall off. In Wales, they don't have a nationalist government like they do in, in Scotland, but they do have a government that does pursue questions of identity in often quite peculiar ways. As one of the things that links Nicola Sturgeon and the first minister in Wales, I call him the Druid, but that's a personal prejudice, is, is that they are both very eloquent, they're both very good speakers, they both sound very good, and they both do bugger all when it comes to the economy. Wales is, is, is another country where things have been pursued other than the, the economy. Things like the Welsh language, for example, has been a huge priority for the, the Welsh government. And they've wrecked the education and housing markets in, in Wales in the same way that the Scottish government has, really by neglect rather than anything else. Nothing malign. They didn't intend that to happen. But if you, if you have a different set of priorities to the economy, guess what? Your economy starts to deteriorate. Now, over there in Ireland, Jim, you've got a great little economy going with all of the little wrinkles that we describe and all of the problems that we acknowledge. But guess what? I think there's a read across from what happened to Nicola Sturgeon and what could happen to Ireland when you have a government, which presumably you are going to have in a year or two's time, that pursues the national question, that pursues the identity question above all others and neglects the economy. Guess what I think will happen to your economy? On the Nicola Sturgeon issue, before I get back to what what it implies for Ireland or not, as the case might be, um, you know, as as I understand it, well, Nicola Sturgeon during COVID was a, a very very popular uh, first minister. You know, just like um, the Druid, our, our, <laughs> just like our friend in Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand. Uh, I was okay. referring to the Welshman. I yes. know. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, but then, you know, over the last number of months, she's become deeply unpopular. And two reasons are being attributed. One is um, her proposed gender laws, which reducing to the age of 16, uh, the age at which a person can obtain a gender recognition certificate, uh, not going down well within some members of her party. And the second and I guess more important issue is that the strategy that she's pursuing for securing independence for Scotland. And um, basically, I think many in the SNP, the Scottish Nationalist Party, were concerned that Nicola Sturgeon's ambition to have a one-issue general election in 2026, if that's when the election is going to be held, um, is a very dangerous strategy and that the SNP could do very, very badly. And she seems to, you know, has allowed this ideology um, Trump economics and um, 
she's becoming unpopular as a result of that. I mean, the, the parallel here for Ireland, of course, is um, I, I, I think, you know, love them or hate them, but parties like Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil, the Green Party, the Labour Party, you know, do get it about the need to have a functioning economy. And, um, you know, we, we, we have for some years a pretty functioning economy, albeit it has all of those wrinkles that, as you say, we've discussed. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm led to believe that the only thing Sinn Féin really wants um, is a united Ireland and that that ideology trumps their interest in the economy. And I mean, they will talk a lot about uh, housing and health, etc. But at the end of the day, uh, the main objective of Sinn Féin is a united Ireland. And if, if that means destroying the economy, so be it. And I'm not suggesting that you destroy the economy deliberately or malignly. No, it's neglect. It's neglect. It's because you have limited bandwidth in politics. This is a pragmatic point, not, a, not an ideological one, is that if you prioritise something, you deprioritise something else, everything else really. And so if your number one priority is national identity, then everything else will get pushed to the side. And I fear for what happens to everything else. So that's it for me today, Jim. I don't know if you've got anything else. No, that's it, Chris. Uh, do have a good weekend. And um, let's now just sit back and enjoy our own furlongs. Um, let it rain. Indeed. Thanks, Jim. See you, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.